It's verse 1, chapter 27, the book of Acts. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the feast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surges, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed and began the next day to jettison the cargo... And on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since there had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has guaranteed or granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come as we were driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. 
As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land." There you go. This is God's Word. Let's ask Him to help us understand it and then obey it. Father in heaven, we thank You for this chapter of Scripture and its position in the book of Acts we've been studying. Lord, we thank You for these stories that paint the picture of not only what happened, but how You treat those whom are Your own. We ask that You'll teach us today from Your Word, and we ask this in Your name. Amen. Well, this is, again, as we left off last week, and uh, right in time, being that it had been over a month listening to Paul's court cases, it seemed like the same thing over and over again. We didn't know right around the corner, or maybe we did, if you read ahead, that there's adventure on the high seas. And this chapter itself is, is, is really uh, a, as, as graphic of a piece of descriptive literature as any in the Bible. And on top of that, as far as historically speaking, it's the most instructive document for the knowledge of ancient seamanship in classic literature. If the world wants to know about old boats and how they sailed, they've got to go to the Bible to figure it out. It's the only place. There's, there's really no counterpart for this type of description this long ago as far as sailing the Mediterranean. There is a reference, and I think I'll put it on the website along with the message. Uh, mine arrives today. It's a copy of a book that the last edition was in 1880. But it's 300 and some pages of this one fellow who lived and sailed in the Mediterranean and spent his life gathering facts and and testimonies to see if this is the way historical weather patterns would have treated what took place. And when he was done with all his calculations, he came up to 14 days it should take a ship that left here and wound up there at that time of the year. We just read it was 14 days. The book should arrive on my doorstep. I'll link it if you'd like 
such things. I know full well that in a room this size, there's some people that have sailed. There's some people that like the ocean. There's some people that think it's a good idea to get in a boat and go out over the water, even though we all know we can't live in it. In the boat, yes, but not in the water. We're not fish. Kind of the same as people who get into airplanes. We're not birds. If something goes wrong, got a problem. Same as something going wrong out in the ocean. Doesn't take a far distance to fall to hit hard, and it doesn't take much water to drown, right? And I do realize that uh, there may be a few of you who got up this morning and had your breakfast, put on your nice clothes, and drove to church to hear about adventure on the high seas. Good for you if that's one who read ahead. Most of us, these hundred nautical references in that chapter we just read over, now some of them are repeated, but things like the top sail or the bow or the stern or a sounding or even a nor'easter, those are new to us. So in going through this, first to understand it and then to obey it, I'll do my best in the time that we have uh, to explain certain things that I think we might not all be familiar with and try not to leave anyone behind because I'm figuring there's some in here who the extent of their uh, nautical understanding is probably somewhere along the lines of SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) Where others of you, this is exactly your thing and you'll probably have things to tell me that I said wrong about it. I do know the difference between port and starboard and the bow and the stern. You would think you'd just call it the front of the boat and the back of the boat or left or right, but they've got terms for that. And then we'll get into things like the wind. If a wind is, is, is a, a northerly wind, which direction is that wind actually blowing? South. When you talk about a wind, you name it where it comes from. A wind out of the north is headed south. But if you've got a current that's a northern current, the current is heading north not coming out of the north. So currents go one way, winds go the other, but they're named the same thing. A westerly current goes west. A westerly wind goes east. If you don't know these things, you're reading it, scratching your head, saying, Luke, you should stick to your day job. That'd be, you know, (laughs) being a doctor. But no, this is exactly as it should be and very well written. So Life itself has often been compared to a voyage across a stormy sea, so it shouldn't be surprising then that many readers and preachers have found allegory in this chapter. In fact, if you were to study not the commentaries but sermon books, there are such things as as books full of sermons, it's actually hard to find an expositional sermon on the 27th chapter of Acts where they just talk about what Luke talked about and then try to find why Luke wrote the story in the first place. Most, unfortunately, look at this whole thing and say, oh, wow, there's four anchors they drop off the back of the boat. So what four things can we find and name them four anchors? Well, Paul had patience. That's the first anchor. Uh, God kept his promises. That's the second anchor, And, and so on and so forth. The problem with that is Luke didn't write this to give pastors an interesting way to find four points and call them anchors. He wrote it to say that four actual, real anchors fell off the back of this boat, and then they cut the ropes later when they needed them no more. We, gotta, we can't be guilty of, of, of interpreting these scriptures above them by adding things to them, nor can we go under them by leaving things out. We have to just interpret it as it's given to us 
And that'll be our, our point today, to try to find why Luke would include this story. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says, those who care for such sort of preaching, that'd be the, the topical allegory, beware of supposing Luke had any such interpretation in mind when he wrote his account. So we'll, we'll skip the four points in a poem, although I will give you four points, but no poem. And those four points are just mile markers to help us keep one uh, act separate from the other. Now, this is not to say that the chapter is devoid of any moral or spiritual lessons. It's full of them if our eyes are open to see them. Uh, for example, you get to see Paul in a new light, which is always neat. Have you ever known someone that they're really good at what they do or they're you know, well-known, but you see them in a situation not normal for them and you find out all these new things about them you didn't know? Well, we've seen Paul preaching. We've seen him teaching. We've seen him evangelizing. We've seen him doing miracles. We've seen him standing on trial, but we haven't yet seen him in the middle of a disaster. And we find that his practical knowledge is very helpful, apart from the fact that God tells him everything's going to be okay. So all this to say, we're going to look at this as it's been given to us. And uh, though it might not be your cup of tea, we'll learn together as we go. And the first of those four categories, we'll start with all aboard. How about that? And each of them have an all uh, attached to them. But all aboard. When it was decided, and when we, we were finishing up chapter uh, 26, Paul's on his way to Rome. Well, at a certain point, it's decided it's time to go. So he and other prisoners are given over to the centurion named Julius, who turns out to be a nice guy. Uh, he was part of the imperial cohort. That sounds cool, doesn't it? Um, wonder if he had a, a, a cool uniform for that. Um, cohort imperial it just means he's uh, working for Rome and their seafaring trade and so forth this voyage would include one connection so it's two different ships they'll change ships at one point with a few layovers otherwise the first leg involves a coasting vessel a coasting vessel would stay close to the coast it's not outfitted for the open sea uh, it was probably a smaller boat with, with lower uh, rails or gunnels it couldn't take the high seas and they would stay very close to the shore and just kind of move around slowly. This was uh, for all types of transit. They're going to be in a ship later, which carries grain, but the first leg is a vessel of adramidium. Now, adramidium, when it says a vessel of, that means it's port of origin. So it's from adramidium, not made out of adramidium. Because sometimes we get our Bibles and our movies mixed up, and this sounds like Lord of the Rings or something, you know... Tony Stark would make his weapons out of or something. If we don't know what the word is, it's got to be like really cool, right? No, it's just a place with a port. First layover was the next day in Sidon, about 70 miles north of Caesarea. And if you hadn't already turned to your maps in the back of the Bible, I'm sure somebody has already, but you probably have a map with these pieces on there. You'll see how, how, at this point how well Paul was taken care of because Julius gives him shore leave. Doubtless with a guard, but they're laid over there. He lets him go to see his friends. This is important if you know Roman history. Prisoners don't get food or clothing. Somebody's got to bring it to them. And there were people who would watch who brought prisoners things and write their names down because they're probably associated with them. Maybe they're going to arrest them too. So it's kind of dangerous sometimes. 
But Paul would not have gotten three meals or changes of clothes. So likely that's what he's going to do. And you carry your provisions with you. Um, when they're back underway, Luke doesn't really linger there. They sailed east and north of Cyprus. If you know where Cyprus is on a map. And then it says this interesting statement on the lee side of the island. Nautical term. The lee side or the leeward side is the face sheltered from the wind. If you've ever beat the banks for bass fishing during spring or something, when they're up shallow, it's nice to find a cove or something where the wind is blowing over the trees and you've got a little bit of shelter, and that actually you know, keeps your boat from drifting without a trolling motor or something. Well, what they're doing, if you're looking at the map, the summertime winds usually are out of the south. They're blowing north. So they're going to go up and over the island of Crete to get out of the wind. Because there's mountains on that island, and it'll disrupt the wind up into the atmosphere such that if you're close by the beach, you can stay out of the wind. And sometimes there's some westerly uh, currents that'll push you along if the wind isn't keeping you from doing so. That's exactly what they're doing here. Uh, And then, you know, once aboard here, uh, they would need to cross a stretch of open sea between Cyprus and the south coast of Asia Minor. Asia Minor, modern day, is what? Turkey. Southern shore, looking south, and they'd hug up against that uh, as, as they move a little further. Uh, this would be slow going, land breezes, westerly current near shore. Um, and one, one more, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the nautical terminology a rest. If you've ever sailed... This is without the motor in the back. The wind is, is, is your source of power. Uh, there's this thing called a tack, which is basically a nautical term for direction. And if you're looking at a 360-degree circle with wind coming straight at you, let's say right out of the north and in your face, a sailboat can't sail straight into the wind. But with about 40 degrees worth of an angle, the wind coming into the sail can push the boat in a northwesterly or northeasterly direction, enough to turn and do the same thing the other direction and turn in the other direction and zigzag your way into the wind. That's kind of a more modern technology of sailboating. These boats couldn't do that. So all they could do is kind of dig in and hope not to lose ground if the wind is blowing them. But if the wind gets up bad, they just park. They'll find a sheltered bay and drop the anchor, and sit until the wind changes into something they can work with. So they round the Cape uh, after they've, they've passed through Asia Minor, and the first convenient shelter they came by was called Fair Havens. And that's where they put in and waited for the wind to change. Now this is Crete, okay? When we start studying Titus, you'll find out what people thought of Cretans basically pirates. Fair Havens was kind of like one of those motels down at the beach with a pretty name and you'd look it up and it looks fine in the pictures and then you give Airbnb the money and you show up and it's a dump. It's it's bad. Well, there's a reason why the Romans don't want to stay here. And there's a reason why Paul does because he'd rather stay in a dump than be dead. But they've got an overabundance of confidence and think that they can make it a little further. So 
Luke tells us that the day of atonement has come and gone, and that's just a time stamp to tell us that the period between the middle of September and the middle of November when the seas became dangerous, that time had already passed. And then after November, they'd closed the whole Mediterranean basically until February. Wherever you are at the end of November by Thanksgiving, you're stuck until after Valentine's Day just because of the unpredictable nature of the winds in the Mediterranean and boats without motors. It's the world that they lived in. So here's where a decision has to be made. They're going to have to winter somewhere because the season is late. So their options are stay in fair havens. And by the way, it's actually still there. There's a a big place to get gas. That's basically it. Or sail on better accommodations in Phoenix. That was westerly along the same uh, southerly coast uh, but not without rounding a cape that would put them in the way of, of the force of winds if the winds are there. So the pilot and the owner of the ship want to go. They don't think that, that the idea of a bunch of prisoners in pirate territory and cheap accommodations is the way to go. They need to risk it and go a little further. Paul wanted to stay because we'll get to that in a moment. But Julius had to make the call. And Julius decides to take the professional opinion over the, prof- uh, the opinion of a prisoner. Now, the problem was the frequency of sudden northerly gales that would jump out of nowhere and could easily blow the ship offshore with nothing between them and Africa but the open ocean. Now, I've got this sense I'm losing some of you. This is getting old. We're spending like lots of minutes on telling this story and trying to figure it out. I haven't been in a big boat before. I've spent a lot of time in a little one, 12 feet. It's plastic. It's kayak. I actually fish in the ocean with it. But there was this one time where a storm came up. It was not cool. And I learned what I'd heard many times before. Some people say this about flying as well. But it's, it's better to be on the land and wish you were in a boat than be in a boat and wish you were on the land. Paul knows this. Because at this point, this is at least Paul's 12th voyage. And that's just the ones that are covered in Scripture. That's at least 3,500 miles at sea under his belt. But this is a Roman fleet ship. makes sense that the Roman centurion would take the professional opinion over the prisoner. So they're going to go for it even though they know it's possible that that famous wind could crop up at any time. Look at verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, oh, they think they're just the smartest guys in the world at that point. They weigh anchor. That doesn't mean they, like, figure out how much it weighs. That means they pull it up. And they sailed along Crete, close to the shore on their way to Phoenix. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, remember they can't even tack, we gave way to it and were driven along. Now if you've got an ESV or an RSV, which the ESV came from, or an NIV, you've got that term Nor'easter. If you have the right version of the NASV, you might have Euroquilo is the name for that 
storm. My favorite by far is the good old King James. Eurachlodon is the name of that storm. That just sounds foreboding, doesn't it? Eurachlodon. When I bought my first kayak, it was a 14-footer. I had to use the paddles before shoulder surgery. And it took a while to outfit it for fishing on the other side of the breakers, which is a big deal. You want to do that right because it doesn't take but like a two-foot wave that your kids wouldn't even boogie board on to flip that kayak and scatter all your gear in front of a massive audience of beachgoers who are enjoying every minute of watching you act like you have no clue what you're doing. So a lot of videos and a lot of stuff and a a radio with a button on the side that can call the Coast Guard at any moment with my name and all that stuff in it uh, on record. Calvary's coming. And my kids say I need to name the boat. So I get an idea. Get me some vinyl lettering and both sides down the front on the stern. Nope, the bow. I put the word Eurachlodon. <laughs> and I'm fishing with some guys. And he's like, what does that mean? Uh, it's Greek for nor'easter. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's okay. And one guy says to the other, he said, I'm already uneasy for fishing with a guy named Ishmael, that was his name, and a guy named Isaac <laughs> out in the same ocean. And then you're going to name your boat after a storm? Is that in the Bible too? I was like, yes. It's the storm that wrecked Paul and a bunch of prisoners on their way to Italy. He said, you've lost your mind. I said, but all of them survived. But the boat was destroyed. I'm like, you're crazy. I thought it was great. Whether or not that's good recess in the middle of this sermon, you can decide. But they make the best of the limited time they have once the wind starts blowing, and they know it's going to get worse. First, they haul the dinghy aboard. You can just imagine trying to get a dinghy back into the boat with everything going crazy. Normally, it's towed behind. And then they frapped the ship. That is, they tied cables underneath to hold the hole together better. Uh, And you thought that a frap was something you got at McDonald's. After that, they lowered the gear, which may have been the sea anchor, which is like a drift sock where the wind's blowing hard, but the current's not, so it's kind of like a break. It's a floating anchor of sorts. That's likely what this was. And then they try their best to avoid the shoals off the African coast, because if you're looking at the map here, Alexandra is almost straight down. And then there's some shoals over to the side. It's a graveyard for these ships. And all they want to do is slow it down so if the wind blows for several days, they don't reach those shoals. So the next day, it's not any better. They're throwing cargo overboard. The day after that, they start throwing part of the ship's rigging into the ocean. So this would be anything extra that they don't need to survive goes into the water. And then 11 nights and days follow. The ship is surely taken on water. It needs bailing. No one's eaten anything. It would have been impossible to prepare food. Uh, Likely a good part of the supplies were, were soaked by salt water. I don't even want to talk about the seasickness. If you've ever been seasick, you know you'd rather be dead than have to eat something. So when verse 20 arrives, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So 
I didn't mention the second point. We were at, you know, all aboard. And then when the decision was made to leave Fair Havens, that's, it's all messed up. And now we're at, it's all over. Says Luke, the one telling us the story, all hope of being saved is at last abandoned. So they don't have a sextant, they don't have a compass, they don't have GPS, they don't have a sat-nav, they don't have navionics. Somebody in here knows about navionics, don't they? Oh, man. It's only the best sea charts there are that you can get even on a plastic kayak. Hmm. Got a lot to learn. (laughs) So in the middle of this misery... They've lost their bearing, they've lost their appetite, they've lost their hope. Paul stands up and he's got something to say. You can't get more dramatic than this. Verse 21. Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Uh, Take heart, no loss of life. This very night, God to whom I belong said, do not be afraid. Verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. How many of you would say that it makes you feel really good about yourself to see that Paul the Apostle couldn't resist and I told you so? Right? I told you. But that's probably to get their attention. I think he got their attention and then he gives them exactly what they need most. He gives them a message of hope because that was gone. When he told them not to go at Fair Havens, he spoke simply as an experienced traveler with sound judgment. He's been down that road before. Hey, don't do it. This time, he's speaking as one having received divine assurance through a dream. That's much different. And he says, it'll be exactly as I was told. Ship is doomed, but no one will be lost. So we're at the 14th day. It's about midnight And perhaps the swell and the sound of distant surf has these men thinking they're nearing shore. There's there's an amazing type of of physics that happen over a long fetch worth of of water. That's a distance. And the wind blowing on it. And if you've ever blown across even a, a, a cup of water, you can see the ripples. The wind makes the ripples. Well, the ripples collect into bigger ripples... And then the wind has something to push against. And based on the speed of the wind and the distance of the wind over water, you can make some pretty massive swells of energy headed toward a coast. But as the depth of the water decreases, that energy gets pushed. The waves get taller. And when the wave, say it's 10 feet, hits half the distance of water depth, 5 feet of depth, the top of that wave falls over itself. And that's what people surf on. They're they're breakers. You can hear this in the distance and they can probably feel the ship rise and in increments of period and swell height, hey, we're getting close to land. They can figure this out in the dark by just their experience. So in the middle of all this, some decide to act like they're dropping anchors from the front of the boat, which nobody would do, but they're really dropping the dinghy and they're about to escape, Paul tells on them. And the purpose of that is this. We're going to need all able-bodied for the beaching in the morning. If people leave now, it only makes it harder on the rest of us. So Centurion cuts all the ropes. Forget about that. Dinghy's gone. We're all in this together. 
And right before daybreak, Paul encourages everyone to eat something. They're going to need their strength. Reassures them that not even a hair from their head will be lost. And this is where Luke tells us 276 souls. Maybe he knew that because he needed to prepare 276 plates or something. We don't know. So when there's enough light to see land, they don't recognize the features of the land enough to identify a specific location, but they do spot a sandy bay, so they cut their anchor ropes, loose the rudder, hoist the sail, and head for the beach. But it's not that easy. They hit the ground. And the word for that in the Greek is a place of two seas. You're deep over here and deep over here. I know if you've gone to the beach and you've gone swimming, there's that little trough that will get up to your neck. You know, you, you can get past the cold water problem there, right? And then you keep walking and you come out to like your knees. You keep walking, you go back down the other side. It's a sandbar. It's the way the ocean pushes grain by grain a big lump of sand that turns into a dune when it's fully grown on the land. But here they've found, uh, and, and it seems it's probably muddy because the, the, the bow gets stuck. And as it's stuck, the waves are beating on the back of the boat, the stern, and the boat can't go anywhere, so it's going to break it up. And that's what's happening. They hit the reef, bow lodges, surf begins to break it up. Some of the soldiers at that point, well, this is it. So they get ready to kill the prisoners. Remember we studied about the centurion almost beating Paul. If he beat Paul, he'd be in trouble. It'd be on him. Well, if you're a prison guard and you lose your prisoners, whatever sentence they had is now yours. That's incentive for you to keep up with your prisoners. So in this case, they'd kill them all. But at this point, Julius thinks a lot of this man, Paul, who's gotten them as far as he has, and he forbids the whole thing and then begins to order, if you can swim, take off. And if you need a piece of this busted up ship, see if you can grab one. And as we read, they all make it to shore exactly as Paul was told. So what do we do? There's your high adventure on the high seas. Um, and this point at the end, by the way, started out with all aboard. This is all messed up. Uh, this is all over. But at the end, it's all good. God did exactly what he said he would do. I don't think we need to open a, 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 a case and try to figure out why Luke wrote this. He wrote this to show us that God keeps his promises even big ones that involve 270-some people and one guy who's got a, an appointment in Rome with the Caesar. So if we're going to try to apply this to ourselves, this is not the only promise in the Bible or even the book of Acts. Uh, we could start off with the track record as far as Paul, who's the one uh, on his way to Rome, and really the rest of the people in the story are just kind of in the background. If we were to look at the backstory, we could go all the way back to chapter 19. That was, that was over a month ago. But that was at that point in verse 21 that Paul concludes, I must also see Rome. That's where his heart's leading him. By the time you get to chapter 23, that was a few weeks later, uh, he has a dream. You remember, he's in jail. And the Lord tells him, you must testify also in Rome, which was cool because he says, you've testified about me here. You're doing a good job. You're faithful, Paul, but you're not done. They're not going to kill you. You're going to go to Rome. By the time we get to chapter 25 and verse 12, 
This is Festus after Paul is saying, okay, I I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So um, that was what Paul wanted. That's what God said he would do. Now you got Festus saying, we'll make it happen. And then we got to verse 24 of the chapter we read this morning. In another dream by the same... King of kings and Lord of lords, you must stand before Caesar. It's going to happen. And then if we were to get ahead of ourselves for uh, next week in chapter 28, verse 14, it's just jumbled up with a bunch of other words. It's, it, it's so, so anticlimactic. And so we came to Rome. So God's promises to Paul are all kept. But here's where a good... Bible student or someone who just came with a guest today might say, that's really cool if you're Paul the Apostle, but I've never had a dream like that. I've never been shipwrecked. Uh, There was that time where maybe there was some turbulence and I held on to that seat back after I put my tray table back where it was supposed to be. And I prayed really hard. But no, we don't have dreams like this. I don't have dreams like this. If people think that full-time pastors get special, you know, dream packages as part of the deal, it doesn't happen. What I've got is the same Bible that you do. So if we're going to not talk about Paul and direct promises to him, what if we just used the same book and looked at promises that were spoken by the mouths of the men who spent three years with Jesus who were told, you will be my witnesses, go and tell them what I told you. These are promises from the same God through his apostles in the form of preaching from the book we've been studying in chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass, shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's, that's the gospel. You trust in Jesus that he is who he said he was, that he died for your sins, that your sins prevent you from going to heaven. They have to be paid for somehow, some way, either by the wrath of God, and that's destruction, and hell. You pay for it yourself. Or Christ pays for it on your behalf. It's his righteousness, not yours, and you get to go to heaven. But somebody's paying, and the only way to do it is Jesus Christ. That will come to pass. That's good preaching. That's Christ's promise. So if... God keeps his promises to Paul. We should think that he should keep our promises to us or everyone, right? If God's God, he has to keep promises. The first promise he doesn't keep means he's not God because he would be wrong and God can't be wrong. If you go a little further, verse 36, same preaching. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you won't even need to worry about which one it is. It's, it's the carpenter from Galilee who's crucified on a Roman cross. That's him. It's a promise. Then by chapter 10, this is verse 42. And he commanded us, who? Jesus did, to preach to the people and testify, that's what witnesses do, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. What qualifies Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead? One, because he hasn't sinned, but two, because he died a sinner's death. Which means not only does he know how to be good and righteous, but he knows what it tastes like to suffer for sins. So, I mean, we we joked about this one time before. Your police academy, before they issue you your taser, what do they do with that taser? 
They shoot you with it. So you know what it feels like before you shoot somebody else with it. So if God's going to be the judge of the world through his son, Jesus Christ, his son, Jesus Christ, knows what the judgment feels like before he hands it out to anyone who's rejected his free gift of salvation. That's what qualifies him. To him, all the prophets bear witness to everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Great promise. Chapter 16, verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Goes for your household too. Chapter 17. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that'd be Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by what? Raising him from the dead. You want to know who he is. You want it proven to you that he can do what he says he could. How about he dies and then comes back from the dead? It's a promise. It was fulfilled. It's in the, in the idea of being saved. Let's see, verse 20, chapter 24, verse 14. And this was just a few weeks ago. This is Paul standing in his own defense. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And that's basically where Paul, this is, this is him testifying to the fact that he believes his whole Bible. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. So he's talking about things they believe in common and that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. There is life after death. It's a promise. So I think Luke gives us a too good to be true. All hope is lost. They're never getting out of this. They're not going to get the Lombardi trophy. They're not hoisting the cup. They're going to lose. Everybody knows it. But what happens? Not a hair on their head is harmed. Exactly like God said. That's why the story's here. Now, somebody else might be thinking, why in the world would God put these men, especially his evangelists through hell to prove a point because we're hard-headed people and we need a point like that to believe it we need to be told over and over and over again we need to be told when we're children so that when we grow up we don't throw it off when other people that we don't even like whom we want to impress think that it's dumb we need this type of thing and who is paul talking about in that last point Now, he wouldn't know him as this, but his disciples would. But he's talking about the carpenter from Nazareth who would be crucified on a Roman cross and die for the sins of the world. He spent some time in a boat, too, with his disciples. They were fishing, basically the size of the dinghy from the other boat. And on one occasion, the wind started blowing. And this can happen. You can look it up. It's worth a Google. I've never gone out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee because the two trips I went, I had to go do something else. And one of them uh, was eat a Big Mac <laughs> because I had had all the schnitzel and uh, the other thing that's at every stop where you go. Y'all know what I'm talking about that have been on the trip. But my father's been out on that sea, and the wind can just come down those mountains and tear the whole thing up in a matter of minutes. And when it starts, usually they kick the motor into high gear, and you feel like you know you're running from the devil. 
That's what it felt like for these disciples. And where is this guy who's going to pay for the sins of the world? He's asleep. They wake him up. What does he do? Hey, what did y'all do? I told you not to leave. You shouldn't have brought us out here. No, he just stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was flat as can be. I'd say he knows something about nautical stuff, wouldn't you? Nobody can do that. That was a miracle. We're not capable of doing miracles. Uh, there's another situation where they're in the boat. Jesus isn't with them. Same problem. Wind comes up. They all think they're going to die. Someone's coming toward them. They suppose it's a ghost. Nope, it's just Jesus walking on the water. Another miracle. But here's where you apply Mooneyham's first rule of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is interpreting the Bible. And this isn't Isaac Mooneyham. It's Lamar Mooneyham's first rule of hermeneutics. Start with a big God. Preferably in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. So for him, telling it what to do or walking on it is not a problem. For him, it's not a miracle. For us to do it, like when Peter did, that's a miracle. And it didn't last long, fell in the water when he started worrying about it, right? So we've got the supernatural up against the natural here, but most of this story is in the realm of the natural. It's God's providence that all were saved, but there's no miraculous thing happening that shouldn't happen. It just seems against all odds it worked out like God said it would. So there's one other point that I thought was worth mentioning. And then we'll sing a hymn and we'll pray and we'll go home. But I think it's fascinating, and this was brought up in a couple of the commentaries. Even though this man, Paul, believed the promise of God and was sure that no one would be lost, his trust didn't stop him from, from some of the things that he did in the story. His trust in God didn't stop him from seeing either that the ship shouldn't take risks with the onset of winter. This was before the dream. But it was his common sense that said, this is not a good, a good choice. The, the risk outweigh the reward. Let's just wait here. We don't need to put ourselves in danger. Well, I thought, Paul, you're going to get to Rome. I mean, you're already told you get to go to Rome. What does it matter? You're going to get to go to Rome. You, you're, you've got cosmic diplomatic immunity. But does that stop him from practically addressing what he considered to be an elephant in the room? We shouldn't do this. Uh, there's other things in here uh, that the sailors would not be allowed to escape. God said nobody's going to die. But uh, that didn't involve the scenario of these guys jumping ship. We're going to need their help later. Nor the idea of Paul saying, hey, you should all eat. You haven't eaten. We're going to exert a lot of energy. You're going to need to swim. Your body needs calories, fuel to burn, to not drown in the ocean. Now, the thing that I'm trying to address here is our faith in God that controls everything and then what he expects us to do in this natural world he made for us. I'll give you another ridiculous scenario and you can tell me if you think it matches. Let's say you've got this student who's a Christian. His parents are Christians. He's raised in church. He knows all the songs. He attends youth groups. He's a good kid. But he goes off to, I don't know, Bible school or something. 
And right before he goes through the door to sit down at his desk on exam day, he says, Lord, I, I, I really need the answers to this exam. Now, what he's not asking is, Lord, would you help me recall these answers from the intense study I've been diligent to do? No. The kid's asking for a full-blown miracle of those answers into my brain that I didn't study for. Now, where in the world is that being a good Christian? Where in the world is that being faithful? Where in the world is that saying, God, thank you for the good brain you gave me and the time that I can to learn this for myself as everybody else did? That's, that's terrible. But you all know that us Christians pray that stupid stuff, don't we? Hey, we're going to the beach, Lord. Hey, kids, pray we have good weather. God's going to change the weather patterns for the rest of the United States just so you can have sunshine on your beach because you're a Christian? I think that's twisting God's arm. I think he already said in the Bible it rains on the just and the unjust, right? So make your plans, and if it works out, praise him. And if it doesn't, say, well, I guess we needed the rain, right? We could go on and on with this type of thing. Paul's a man's man. He's a practical, experienced gentleman of a man who in the next chapter is going to be busy collecting firewood because he's not expecting God to bring down fire on the pieces of wood like he did with Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal. That's when he gets bitten by a snake. That's next week. Snakes. We're going to take up snakes. That's a different passage. We're going to kill snakes next week. So, yes, Paul's a real guy. He had faith in his Lord that he was going to do his business. But he was faithful to the calling that God gave him. And so should we be busy and diligent, using what he gave us to the best of our abilities, wherever we are, and for his glory. We're going to sing our great Savior. And uh, even though I changed the text... On the Wednesday night thing, if you noticed, we were going to look back on some things that we went over quickly in last week's passage. But when you know it, in that third stanza, Jesus, what a help in sorrow, while the billows over me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. Here's the point. God's not going to spare us. A stormy sea just because we're his children. We're going to have him. We're going to need him through the middle of it. But on the other end, he's going to be bigger. And we're going to be smaller, which is exactly what the gospel is all about. So take heart. When Paul says take heart, the end of the story is settled for you. You've still got the journey ahead. Pray for courage, strength, Faithfulness for adventure on the high seas. That's what's in store. And for those of you that are spiritually adventurous, you wouldn't want it any other way. Let's pray.